So they say a picture is worth a thousand words. We've, we've heard this before. My question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that a picture is worth a thousand words? Do you believe that sometimes a, an image can say it better than a detailed description? Sometimes? I think we probably all agree that there are, there are certain times or specific moments where that may be the case. The question I then have, because I'm just kind of a questioning kind of guy, is uh, when... Like, like, how do we decide when we're going to use kind of a picture to show someone something rather than a, a lengthy description? How, how do we decide when to do that? Well, we don't really decide, do we? We just kind of feel it in the moment, which is not great advice most of the time, uh, but that's just kind of how we do it. Sometimes we're like, you know what, just look, and we just show them a picture of something rather than uh, explaining it to them in some lengthy, long, detailed description. But something else that I find interesting is that sometimes we kind of do both, but we're, we're really showing an image, but we use words to paint the picture. You know what I'm saying? Like sometimes uh, instead of uh, showing an actual image or instead of just this, you know, scientific, factual, historical, whatever, laying out the details, we actually kind of paint a picture with our words, right? Um, you grammar buffs, we've got uh, similes and metaphors and analogies and all these kinds of things. Uh, some of you are looking uh, back around each other and you're like, didn't know this was a tongue speak in church, but <laughs> those are real things, okay? Similes, analogies, metaphors, there's all kinds of different ways, varieties uh, of ways that we can use our words to paint pictures, to create these images. And so as we continue in our message series called Jude Contending for the Faith, we come to verses 12 and 13 today where Jude uh, uses his words to show us something, to show us images of apostasy. And that's what our message is called today, images of apostasy. Now, apostasy, before we go on uh, too much further, uh, no, you don't put on marinara sauce or Alfredo sauce. Apostasy has nothing to do with pasta. Um, I'm hungry too. I skipped breakfast, not on purpose. But apostasy just means uh, departing from the truth. That, that's really the definition of apostasy. And we call someone who has a person who has departed from the truth an apostate, okay? So when we use the term apostasy or when we refer to these guys we're going to be looking at today in these images as apostates, that's what we're talking about. People who have departed from the truth. Now, up to this point, um, Jude has not used exactly, uh, not certainly the imagery like he does today, the, painting these pictures. Up to this point, Jude has warned us about these certain persons who've crept into the church unnoticed. He says they're ungodly persons who deny uh, our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he, he says that they're, they're ungodly and they turn the grace of God into licentiousness, right? He's told us these facts about them. He also showed us examples from history, right? So that we know these guys are not going to go unpunished. And that they too have done just what these people in the past have done. And that's a warning for them and it's a warning for us as well. And then he, he showed us the error of their ways, that, that they remember they don't um, recognize, they don't honor and acknowledge properly anyway, the authority of the Lord. They kind of thumb their nose at spiritual things because of the resulting ignorance that they have about spiritual things because they don't respect the authority of God and his word. And then last week, remember Jude saying that they've, they've gone the way of Cain, they've rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and then ultimately they've perished in the rebellion of Korah. And how did that all start? What were those three words he said at the beginning? Anybody remember? Woe to them, 
right? Woe to them because they've done these three things. So he's told us this stuff, gone back into history, explained factually what they've done, compared them to other people for us. But today, he's just painting these pictures. And if you read it by itself, which is kind of what we're going to do today, although I've just re- I filled you back in on some context here. Um, if you just read this by itself, you'd be like, what? <laughs> like, because it's just, by itself, it's just these, these strange pictures. But we come today to these images that if we take what we've read so far, and then uh, later on, you know, we'll, we'll put it with what we're going to read uh, as we continue through Jude's letter, it, it makes sense. So look at Jude verses uh, 12 and 13 here. He said, these men are the men, or these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Sometimes a picture uh, makes things clearer immediately. Other times, pictures are, are given to us to make us pause to cause us to create a moment where we will take a second, look at this from a couple different angles, look intently at what's being said. You know, you, you say certain details and people have to go, well, that's a funny way to put it. And then they think about it and on a deeper level, it makes more sense. That's kind of what Jude is, is doing here. Actually, I think that's exactly what Jude is doing here. He's created these images for us so that we'll look into this and see the significance of what these apostates, these men who have uh, departed from the truth, to, to see what they really are so that we can better understand really the nature of their wickedness and, and what they're doing as a result of their departing from the truth, okay? Now, again, we have to keep in mind as we do any of this stuff over the, the next several weeks, as we've been doing over uh, the previous weeks, all of this, even what we see in verses 12 and 13 today, these images, these pictures, it's all connected to Jude's purpose statement in verse 3. We can't forget what Jude said in verse 3. Beloved, he said, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you do what? contend earnestly for the faith which was handed down to the saints, which was once for all handed down to the saints, right? And so these images that he's showing us here on the page, they're intended to help us in some way to contend earnestly for the faith, to better equip us to be able to do that. We've got to keep that in mind as we're going along or we'll, we'll, we'll just academically figure out what the images mean and, and nothing will happen. We've got to remember, okay, this is equipping me to be able to contend earnestly for the faith. It's our job today, yes, to figure out what these images mean and what they teach, but also how they can help us to be better equipped to contend earnestly for the faith like we've been called to do, like, like Jude felt the necessity to appeal to us to do. So keep that in mind as we go through the images. Image number one is the image of hidden reefs. Jude said, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear caring for themselves. So to really see the image here, to, to understand it, we need to know what a reef is first of all, right? Um, I'm going to tell on myself. I read through, uh, I've read through this and, and this is going to be a bad habit to break. Every time I see the word reef, because I'm not an ocean guy, I'm not a water guy, I don't go to the ocean, I don't know these things. Um, and so I hear reef and I'm seeing like seaweed. That's not a reef. 
Okay? I don't know if any, probably literally no one else in this room thinks like I do. Um, um, maybe Matt Rutledge, maybe. Yeah, exactly. These are, these are ledges or ridges of hard, jagged rock underneath the surface of the sea, underneath the, the ocean. Now, what's the problem with a hidden reef, a hidden ledge of, of rock or coral or a hard surface like that? Well, you can be floating right along, enjoying your, your little outing on the open sea or the, uh, the open water, and then without any um, warning, without any opportunity to, to brace for impact, suddenly your vessel becomes dashed on a rock, right? Th that's how it happens because it's a hidden rock under the surface of the water. You may have damage to your boat. You may start sinking. You could be injured as a result of the sudden stop and you go flying forward. We've all seen the YouTube videos. We know what it looks like. It looks like it hurts really bad. But at the very least, your progress is certainly going to be stopped, right? I mean, that's like a, well, duh. But I mean, that's an important thing to notice. The progress you were making out on those, those clear waters, when you get dashed against a hidden reef, you're stopped. You're not moving forward. Progress is halted. No matter how we slice this, these hidden reefs are unwelcome and dangerous surprises. These men, like this, are the very reason that we have to contend earnestly for the faith because they're like these hidden reefs, like sailing out on smooth waters. We can gather together as the church, enjoy our fellowship time together, uh, worship alongside one another, share meals together, participate in the Lord's Supper together, uh, serve one another, and all these different things. And it can be smooth sailing for quite some time with these people among us, right? We can go months, we can go years even, but there can still be those hidden reefs just, just under the surface. We don't, we don't know when we might be dashed against them, when, when a few of us or one of us or, or so on. But they, they can just be hidden reefs among us. Jude says that they feast without fear, caring for themselves. So they aren't afraid to be right in the middle of everything is kind of what this is saying. Right in the middle of everything that we do, they can be right here, but... They can be identified, you see. They can be identified because they're the ones who, who aren't serving others. Instead of serving others and shepherding others and laying down their lives and making sacrifices for the family of God, they are only caring for themselves. They can be identified in this way. Paul identified this kind of problem in the church at Corinth. Remember that? He wrote to them in 1 Corinthians uh, 11. Uh, verses 20 through 22. Dennis mentioned this in his meditation last week, uh, this, this issue that was going on, right? It says there, Paul says, therefore, when you meet together, it is not for, the, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. I mean, it should have been, but he's like, but effectively what you're doing, it's not. When you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you, Paul says. These people were being extremely selfish and divisive, and Paul calls them out on it. And praise the Lord for it. It's a good, good example, good teaching for us. He asked them the rhetorical question, do you despise the church of God? And he wasn't being dramatic and uh, exaggerating or anything, the, the situation, the, the facts of it. He, this is what their actions, their attitudes were doing. They were saying to God that we despise your church. That's how we're treating it. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, if you treat me a certain way, that's how I feel you feel about me. 
okay? You can't love me to death and just think the, the best of me and, and always, you know, give me the benefit of the doubt and, and slap me and make fun of me and give me a hard time all the time. That's not how it works, right? What they were doing by their attitudes and their actions was telling God, we despise your church. Because that's what they were literally doing was despising the church. Back in Ezekiel 34, uh, verse 2, God told Ezekiel, son of man, pay attention to the, the, the um, the, the shepherd, what the shepherd should be doing and isn't. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Here we go, another woe. Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? God knows what shepherds are supposed to be doing. And God doesn't care a bit for shepherds who aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. The, the word that Jude used in verse 12 of our text there when, when he says after the, their hidden uh, reefs and they feast without fear, he says caring for themselves. That word caring there in, in the Greek is poimeno. It's the word that, that we're familiar with probably that means to shepherd, means to, or to act as a shepherd. So that's what he's saying. He's saying that they're just shepherding themselves. These people that are among the church that are these ungodly ones and these ones we're so concerned about and, and need to pay attention to and reject their influence, they're in amongst us. They're hidden reefs and, and they're just eating with us, drinking with us. They're, they're sharing in the fellowship and everything else, but they're just caring for themselves. They're just shepherding themselves. I mean, what do shepherds do? They, they provide food and, and water and shelter, protection, right? Guidance. And they do it all for who? For others, right? Not themselves, for the sheep. They don't, they don't do these things for themselves. They sacrifice their comfort and their safety for the sheep, for other people. We have to contend earnestly for the faith because there are times when people like this creep into the church and they're just here to feed themselves. They're not here to participate as a member of the body like they're supposed to be. They're here for wrong reasons, right? Church, we gotta be careful not only to identify these hidden reefs, if they exist among us, but we also have to avoid becoming one. Because I think you can look at this and, and very quickly, rather than, I mean, you want to look around, but rather than looking around and think about uh, if there's anything like that going on, you kind of immediately want to go, you know, I've gone through moments or, or seasons or, or times where I was probably a little bit selfish. And so we do need to turn it back on us and look at ourselves a little bit, make sure we're not becoming uh, one of these hidden reefs. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul taught Christians what they ought to be doing instead. He said, do nothing from selfishness. Don't have that motivation for, for anything. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Does that sound like a shepherd who feeds themselves? Or does that sound like someone who is uh, caring for others? That's somebody who's caring for others. We need to care for others. We need to shepherd others. That's not just for elders, right? That word shepherd, anyone can shepherd. Now, elders can have hands laid upon them and be shown to the congregation. These are examples for you. Follow them as they follow Christ. They're here for you. They're here to pray with you and for you and teach you and help you and rebuke uh, those who are, are going off the path and all that stuff. But we're all supposed to regard others as more important than ourselves. We're all supposed to shepherd and care rather than just being here to feed ourselves. So be responsible for protecting and guiding other Christians rather than becoming an obstacle that could shipwreck their faith. Know what I'm saying? All right, image number two is clouds without water. 
Clouds without water. In the second part of verse 12, that, that middle section, Jude said that these, uh, these men are also clouds without water carried along by winds. Clouds without water carried along by winds. What's a cloud? You knew how much I struggled with reefs, so I googled it. Every reputable weather source I could find basically said that a cloud was a mass of condensed water. Right? Boy, did it come down today. <laughs> uh, so far already this morning, we've had plenty of it, right? But a, a, a mass of condensed water. So if that's what a cloud is, and Jude says these men are clouds without water, how's that? I mean, on a very basic level, Jude is at the very least saying that these men are not what they seem to be. They're clouds, but not really. Not effectually. They, they don't actually provide any of the water. They don't even have the, the water, it seems like that. But more specifically, using the image of a cloud without water tells us that they're disappointing and they're discouraging. Think about these people who were originally reading Jude's letter in a dry and arid climate. I mean, they know what it's like to be watching a cloud and be like, oh, please come anywhere near where my sheep graze. Please just come over here anywhere near where my crops are planted, right? And please, when you get here, drop some of that water. Like, I need some of that rain. Imagine how they saw this image as Jude is writing this to them. You know, nearly every time a cloud approached, they were probably hoping for that rain to fill the streams, water the ground, feed their crops. And as that cloud passed by without rain, what a disappointment. What a, what a discouragement. And that disappointment, that discouragement itself takes a toll on you. Just getting your hopes up and then it not happening, that in itself takes a toll on you. But what about literally the fact that you didn't get what you needed? That, that water, the, the actual much needed refreshing rains don't come. And so you're not just disappointed and discouraged. You actually now are going without what you need. You don't have uh, that water that you need. Proverbs 25, 14 says, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. Person who says that they're able to do this or do that, but actually isn't able to do this or do that, or just isn't willing, just, just chooses not to do that particular thing, is like a cloud without water. They disappoint others. They discourage others. And they let others down because they don't actually get what they actually need. As members of the body of Christ, we don't actually get from one another what we need. When somebody says, you know, oh, well, you know, God's blessed me with a, you know, just a knack for it, an ability for it. Okay, could you, you know, use that for him? Could you benefit the congregation by, by putting that into practice, please? That's what we've been called and commanded to do. We, we know that there are so many one another commands in the scriptures, don't we? One another commands that we're supposed to uh, do this, think this, behave this way, say this to one another, to our fellow sheep in this flock of God, the church body. We know where to love one another, to serve one another, to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn or weep with those who are mourning and weeping. To serve one another. We're supposed to um, contribute to the needs of one another. To practice hospitality toward and with one another. To give preference to one another. Honor one another. All these things. And as we do these things, the brother or sister who is on the receiving end of that, they're refreshed by those things. They're refreshed by those things. Paul noted on several occasions uh, this idea of being refreshed. Philemon uh, verse 7 he said, for I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed. How? 
Because of just circumstances? No, because of what somebody did, right? Through you, brother, he says. Now look at 2 Timothy 2.16. Paul wrote there, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. So he did it. He and his household refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the second half, verse 13, says, We rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. 1 Corinthians 16, 18 says, for they have refreshed, they, someone, a group of people in the church, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. Uh, brothers and sisters, sometimes we feel like dry soil and we need a good, uh, good rain to refresh us. And that rain comes from, from one another. Uh, we don't want anybody to rain on our parade. That's a different story. But when life doesn't feel like a parade, okay, nobody's going to be raining on the parade. You know, sometimes, sometimes opportunities have, have dried up and we're facing a drought of one disappointment after another. When that happens, a little rain is a great thing, right? Well, we, could, we could really use that. I mean, just somebody saying, hey, I prayed for you on Tuesday this morning might totally change your Sunday afternoon. I mean, you all know that's possible. Now imagine what more could be done. That's the most basic uh, elementary foundational thing that could be done in this way. But these men who've crept in unnoticed, these ungodly ones who Jude is warning us about, they're like clouds without water, he said, carried along by winds. Carried along by winds. So when refreshment is hoped for, when it's expected even, or maybe, maybe even we could say needed. They just carried along by the winds. They just, like a cloud carried along by the winds, they just pass right on by. No rain, no help, no refreshment. It's people like this that create a very real need for us to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Image number three is autumn trees without fruit. In the last part of verse 12, Jude describes these apostates as autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a bit of a mouthful. Short sentence, but a bit of a mouthful because uh, it feels like there's some words missing. But he said what he meant to say. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Now, what is the significance of an autumn tree? The way Jude is using this. What, what's the significance of an autumn tree? It's harvest time, right? It's time for stuff to be, be picked off of this thing, right? We should see a tree that's gone through the spring and summer stages and now is filled with well-ripened, useful fruit. But we got a problem with these autumn trees. The image that Jude gives us here is an image of autumn trees without fruit. There's nothing growing on them. Now, according to Genesis 1.11 and common sense, a fruit tree is designed by God to produce fruit with seed in that fruit, so that more of those trees that produce more of that fruit can happen, can, can be produced, right? That, that's how God created this whole system to work, right? And in Matthew chapter 21, we see Jesus cursing a tree. Remember what kind of tree that was? Fig tree, right? Yeah, he, he curses a fig tree because it didn't fulfill its purpose. We had a message uh, on that when we did our um, Stories from the Road series, I think it was. I think that's what I called it, Stories from the Road, where we talked about this. And the, the reason he cursed it, the lesson that we got from it, was because it didn't fulfill its purpose. Well, there's a lesson for us there, right, too? 
We're not producing fruit. Don't fulfill our purpose, our God-given purpose. There's a lesson for us for sure there. But let's look at just a, a snippet of it here in Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 and 19. Uh, the Bible tells us, Now in the morning when he, Jesus, was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and, uh-oh, found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Destruction is the destination for trees that don't produce. Again, there's a lesson there. We can't go off into it right now, but there's a lesson there and you probably get it, right? Matthew 15, 13 says this. this is talk, th these are Jesus' words again. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Now, if you're paying close attention, you'll see now why Jude has said that these guys are like autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead. Right? They didn't produce fruit. And Jesus said that every tree that isn't planted by his heavenly Father is going to be uprooted. Okay? So they're considered dead, doubly dead. Considered dead, first of all, because it's harvest time and there's no produce. And they're considered dead in a second way because a non-producing tree is to be uprooted. Chopped up, thrown into the fire, right? We know that image. There's another image that Jesus gave us, right? The presence of people like this, it's a very real danger, to, to, to say the least. Very real danger in the church today. Think about the behavior of someone who isn't producing. Think about the behavior, the attitudes, the mindset of somebody who isn't growing spiritually, isn't putting any effort into trying to grow spiritually, to mature spiritually, to produce the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Think about that person. The anger, the short fuse, the drama, the lack of love, the lack of joy, the lack of involvement, the bad attitude, the negativity, the complaining, the gossip, and so on. <clears throat> that kind of behavior impacts the church directly. But then there's also the, the, the influence of that kind of person on the church, right? That behavior in itself, they could hurt your feelings one day, okay? It could directly impact you. They could discourage you and cause you to not produce. That, that right there directly impacts you. But think about just the overall influence of that in the church, that among us. If the church doesn't contend earnestly for the faith against this kind of stuff, what's going to happen? It's going to become church culture. It's going to become the way we are. People are going to walk in and they're going to walk out because they're going to say, whoa, that church was this. That church was that. And it's not going to be a positive thing, right? As those who love Jesus for who he is and what he's done, producing fruit ought to be just a natural outpouring of our gratitude, of our, an action of thanksgiving toward him for, for who he is and, and what he's done. Something we want to do. But we also need to bear in mind at all times the, the fate of a non-producing tree at harvest time. Follow this picture all the way through. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Was he talking about trees specifically there? Or was he talking in the, uh, in the context of, of people at harvest time, judgment, that, that's what he was talking about. 
Let's beware of these doubly dead trees and let's contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Let's do that rather than to allow uh, these doubly dead trees to draw us uh, backward, to knock us down, to, to set the church uh, back after all the work that we've put in to, to producing fruit. Right? Image number four is the image of wild waves. Jude shows us this image at the beginning of verse 13. Uh, he calls these apostates wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. There is a picture. <laughs> Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. Now the term wild waves... The fact that they put wild almost seems to, to kind of indicate this destructive nature, right? They're wild waves. They're going all over the place. These aren't calm, gently rolling, beautiful things. These are, these are the big ones, violently uh, rising and falling, pushing around anything that's in their path, you know, flipping it over. It doesn't matter. They're wild waves. But the emphasis here is placed on what the wild waves produce. You see that? When the waves get wild, when they're intense and more violent than usual, we see foam produced by those waves, right? Ever seen that on the river here in Madison? You're like, wow, that doesn't happen very often. You know, normally the river is fairly calm looking from the outside. You know, I'm sure it's pretty wild all the time inside. But, but sometimes, you know, a big storm coming in or whatever, and you see those, you know, you see some waves. Now, it's nothing like waves in the, on the sea, but you see some of that white bubbly foam on top because it's got wild enough that that happens. That foam is seen at the top of those waves, right? And then that foam is certainly seen up on the beach as those waves make landfall. And as the water recedes back from the beach, what do we find on the shore? Scum, mud, what Jake thought was a reef, but it's actually seaweed. <laughs> you know, all this junk that, that was cast up got caught kind of in the foam, and the foam just sort of mm, just laid it on the beach. Filthy debris is what it is. All that junk rose to the top, and as those waters receded, the foam left all that junk behind. I don't know what just happened, but I've got it back. Okay. Picture that foam laying all that on the beach. These men who Jude, uh, first of all, called hidden reefs, clouds without water and autumn trees without fruit. He also says they're wild waves casting up their own shame like foam. They might look impressive in certain ways. They might be powerful like a, like a wave would be, like a wild wave would be. They may seem intimidating, maybe a little bit scary to, to deal with or to face, but the fact is their shameful deeds always surface and, and make a mess and leave a mess. Isaiah rightly said in Isaiah 57, 20, the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. Isn't that a powerful picture as well? Now, remember, as we're doing all this, as we're going along, Jude is warning us about people like this in the church amongst us, within our congregation. He's warning us to be on the lookout for people who are uh, like this in the midst of us. Some of you have been around long enough probably to have seen people behave like this in the church. Like a wild wave, their behavior seems uncontrollable. What will they do next? We have no idea actually. 
like a wild wave. You can't predict what they might do next. And it, it makes us all nervous. It makes us all concerned. We're worried and, and they're considered part of us and we don't want other people to think that this is the way we do business, but we're worried about it. They're like a wild wave. We can't control them. We don't know which way they're going to splash next or how hard it'll be or what's going to come and surface to the top. Like a wild wave, their shameful behavior always does that. It always surfaces as a result of their instability. Wild waves are nothing to be messed around with, are they? We know that. that. That's common sense. Don't go messing around in the ocean very far at all when there's wild waves going on. But also, the mess they leave behind is a serious undertaking to clean up. It always is. And so rather than just tolerating them, or, or even bracing for impact, you know, with them and, and be ready for the fight that's coming. Rather than that, l let's get out ahead of this. Let's know the truth and teach the truth in such a way that the seas stay calm around here. And there's not this instability of, who knows what somebody might say in this church. You know, let's, let's not have that. Let, let's learn and let's teach so that, that doesn't happen. Let's be involved in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ in such a way that we don't allow shameful deeds to surface. There needs to be accountability, a mutual expectation to live according to God's standard that I expect you and you and you and you expect me. We're going to live like that. And it's the odd thing to do to not live like that. That's the kind of culture that we need to, to create in, in this church. That's the way we're supposed to do this in the Lord's church. If each of us would play an active role in that, there would be no wild waves in our sea. They would either calm down or they'd go splash somewhere else. And we would be fine with either one. That would be just fine. Guys, this is how we contend earnestly for the faith against wild waves. Image number five, last image here, is wandering stars. At the end of verse 13, Jude refers to the apostates, remember those who have departed from the truth, as wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Now, wandering stars, an interesting concept. Stars have a path of orbit, right? They, they orbit around the center of their, their galaxy. That's how, that's how that works in simple terms. You're like, I'm going to look that up later. This guy didn't even know what a reef was. <laughs> but, but look, I, I, I figured out the error of my ways. I, I, I research before I spew it up here, okay? But that's what they do. They, they have a path of orbit, and they have this designated path. They're supposed to travel within their galaxies, around the center of their galaxy, roughly. And so a wandering star... A wandering star would seem to be a star that has departed from its designated path, right? It's wandering. It's supposed to go like this. If it's wandered, that means it probably went like this at some point in time. It's a wandering star. Guys, that is practically the definition of an apostate. There's a path that you're supposed to travel, but you departed from it. That's what an apostate is, departing from the truth, right? Think about the way it's supposed to be. The center of our galaxy is Christ. 1 Peter 3.15 instructs us to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Our lives are supposed to revolve around or orbit around the center of our galaxy, and the center is supposed to be our Lord. He's supposed to actually be our Lord. He's supposed to be, it's supposed to be Jesus at the center of literally everything, and if we don't feel like we're orbiting around Jesus by doing something, we better not be doing it. We've got to stop that. 
And then the truth of God's word is our designated path of orbit. That's the path we're supposed to be on. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 14, the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. Okay, there is a clear path that we've been called to walk, a course that we're to carefully uh, remain upon. Carefully. We're supposed to remain on this course and not get off of this. We need to be diligent about accurately handling the truth, uh, knowing it and living according to it. Because just like a, a wandering star that can only drift off into black darkness, right? you get out of orbit, wh where are you going? You're going out into outer darkness, black darkness. Just like that, there's a judgment coming for all those who have departed from the truth, the, the light, right? And that judgment is also described as black darkness in the scriptures. Not just here in this image, but elsewhere. That judgment is described that way. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, uh, Peter has this to say about those who do not walk according to the truth. He says, these are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. In Jesus' images of hell, we know Jesus uh, warned and talked and described hell, uh, talked about and described hell many different times. He refers at least three times that I ran across this past week. He refers to it in Matthew 8, 12, Matthew 22, 13, and Matthew 25, 30 there as the outer darkness. It makes sense if you're not going to walk in the light, but instead live your life in the darkness. Darkness is what you shall get. Darkness is what you will get, right? Like a star that wanders off its course and chooses to travel out into outer darkness, individuals who choose not to orbit around the light will spend eternity in the outer darkness. That's image number five. Remember how we started this morning? They say a picture is worth a thousand words. Do you believe that? Do you believe that sometimes an image makes an impact that words can't? After seeing these images that, that Jude has created for us, images of hidden reefs and clouds without water and autumn trees without fruit, wild waves of the sea and wandering stars, how do you feel about images being used? I'm asking you not to answer out loud, but I'm asking you to think now. After seeing what Jude has shown us, how do you feel about these images being used to describe or to portray the, the dangers of people who might creep into the church unnoticed? Again, I want to I warn us, caution us, not to become paranoid uh, about these people possibly uh, being among us. But we certainly do have wise words here, uh, once again in Jude's letter this week, that we need to pay attention to. Words that need to be heeded, right? A level of vigilance is necessary. And it's for every single one of us. Every single one of us is being called to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. And we do that by making sure that, first of all, we ourselves don't become anything that Jude has shown us in these images. And then making sure that we're able to identify and reject the influence of those who are hidden reefs, clouds without water, autumn trees without fruit, wild waves of the sea, and wandering stars. So there's action called for here. Now it's up to us to, to understand the images and put it into practice. Identify those things, make sure they're not present in our life, and make sure we reject that influence in the church today.